Hi, this is Elia Fishman, and welcome to part two of looking at some of the pathology of the abdominal aorta. We spoke about uh, SMA dissection. We spoke about SMA syndrome. Let's talk about vasculitis. And vasculitis is something commonly missed, and I'm seeing more cases of these days. Uh, many vasculitis characterized by inflammation and necrosis of blood vessels commonly involve the SMA. It can lead to circumferential wall thickening, stenosis, or microaneurysms. Lupus is most common in females and young middle or middle-aged adults. Takayashus involves the SMA, uh, but again, most common vessel involved with Takayashus is going to be the left subclavian artery. Um, we talk about giant cell arteritis, which is a large vessel disease. We talk about polyarteritis nodosa, and we've seen that giving multiple microaneurysms of branches of the SMA as well as multiple renal artery aneurysms. It's important to recognize SMA vasculitis because if you don't diagnose it, the treatment will not be correct. S steroids, glucocorticoids, immunosuppressive drugs are all used to reduce inflammation. Um, typically, stenting is not done. Angioplasty can be used occasionally, but again, steroid treatment is usually the way to go, and then in cases that really or a refractory to treatment, perhaps then you do a more invasive procedure, and with coil embolization uh, being reserved more for aneurysms. Good example of vasculitis, thickening of the SMA and narrowing of the vessel, some cases more than others, or a case like this with multiple small aneurysms, you see them off branches off the SMA, off the hepatic artery, off the GDA, and off the patient's renal arteries, and in fact, this patient had multiple renal artery aneurysms, almost too many to count. In addition to, you can see splenic artery microaneurysms here. And you can see that very nicely also when you do the cinematic rendering with a different range and perspectives. It's impressive the combination of narrowing of branches of the patient's SMA as well as the aneurysms. And there is narrowing also in the left renal artery and you can really see how impressive this can look and how, of course, it's very easy to walk by unless you do vessel segmentation, isolation, and you use post-processing. Because in this case, for example, most of this was read as negative in the initial presentation. Now, we also talk about other vessels. Splenic artery would be a good example. Aneurysms and pseudoaneurysms. Usually aneurysms are incidental findings while pseudoaneurysms present with symptoms. Splenic artery aneurysms are the third most common intra-abdominal aortic aneurysm. Frequency, typically under 10%, but usually closer to 0.2% or 0.1%. It's more common to occur in women, and that relates to pregnancy, I believe, but more common to rupture in men. The associated conditions, atherosclerosis, hypertension, particularly portal hypertension, cirrhosis, pregnancy, and liver transplantation. On the other hand, pseudoaneurysms, the most common time I see it is associated with pancreatitis and not your first episode. Patients with repeated episodes of pancreatitis where the pancreatic fluid wears down the vessel and you get pseudoaneurysms, trauma, post-operative complication, peptic ulcer disease are all possibilities. In patients with pseudoaneurysm, the presentation can be acute abdominal pain. It can be melena. It can be hematemesis. Pseudoaneurysms rupture in up to 37% of cases with mortality once they rupture approaching 90%. 
So some examples. Here's a very classic splenic artery aneurysm. Under two centimeters, typically nothing is done. Here's another one by the splenic hilum. You'd be more concerned about this. It's a cirrhotic patient with portal hypertension, particularly if you're going to do a liver transplant. Sometimes when they get larger, they're embolized before the liver transplant or even resected. Just a very nice example. Sometimes, as in this case, you can see multiple splenic artery aneurysms. Often they're small when they're multiple, but you can have a very large one and several smaller ones. You can see they can calcify in total and be thrombosed or partially calcify and the vessel is widely patent, like in this case. And it's important to recognize that patients who have one aneurysm can have another. If you see splenic artery, look carefully at other vessels. Here's a patient with a GDA aneurysm as well as a splenic artery aneurysm. Again, the rim-like calcifications usually protect those aneurysms as felt against spontaneous rupture. And you can see the rim calcification here or here as well. Very nicely shown in this case. Now, splenic artery aneurysms will need to be resected if they get too large because you can't coil them. Look at the size of this one, approaching five centimeters. And here it is in 3D as well. Very, very nicely shown. And here's another set of images showing the same thing. Now, those are all aneurysms you either treat conservatively or you may need to resect because of its sheer size. Here's a pseudoaneurysm. Inflammation, you see the pseudoaneurysm. You're concerned that this could indeed rupture. There it is again and again. That will be embolized. You worry about the fact that these pseudoaneurysms, you see part of the lumen, can easily rupture. You see the outpouching off the splenic artery the fluid collection around there. Here was a patient who was found down, uh, was treated. They didn't see a pseudoaneurysm, but they found blood. And once the blood resorbed, now you saw the pseudoaneurysm. This patient was very lucky. And this patient had this um, resected. You could imagine this could have ruptured again. You can still see fluid around the patient's pseudoaneurysm. Again, a very important diagnosis. Here it is again. And again, this needs to be treated or this patient will have a rupture of that vessel and this patient could die. This patient was very lucky they almost did die. And here's a few more images showing that case. Now, sometimes splenic artery aneurysms when they're calcified or even when they're not calcified can be confused with pancreatic tumors. This was felt to be a neuroendocrine tumor with partial calcification, tail of pancreas. And it was only when we did the reconstructions that we realized this was an ectatic splenic artery aneurysm. So a beautiful example of a splenic artery aneurysm, best seen on the 3D MIP, simulating a, uh, a neuroendocrine tumor. So you don't want to make that mistake. And here it is again. You see it washes out. Now, the truth is you shouldn't say neuroendocrine tumor. They commonly calcify. But when you have rim-like calcification, you're always typically or almost always talking about a vascular process like an aneurysm, in this case, splenic artery. When you see calcifications that more punctate when it's a neuroendocrine tumor. Now, in the spectrum of vascular processes, infarction is right up there in the spleen. You can see focal zones involved, usually one or more focal infarcts. Occasionally, it can be global when the entire spleen's involved, and that's probably more common in trauma scenarios. Infarcts can be due to endocarditis, atrial fib, sickle cell disease, 
Can we do the tumor? Can we do just the fact the patient has large spleen like in splenomegaly or mononucleosis in almost anything benign or malignant? The appearance is classic wedge-shape, decreased attenuation extending to the surface, often sharply marginated, could be single, it can be multiple, and it can involve any portion of the spleen. And over time, you can see retraction and scarring in the spleen. Here's about two-thirds of the spleen being infarcted. Just a really good example, very nicely shown in this case. Here's more of a global infarct post-Whipple's procedure. Basically, the entire spleen is infarcted. The importance of IV contra is you would miss this. This was a febrile patient post-Whipple's, and it was the infarction of the spleen that was the cause of the patient's fever. Nicely shown in coronal views. Here's another example of a near-global infarct of the spleen. So splenic infarcts, again, you can see them with many different things from aneurysms and pseudoaneurysms or just embolic phenomena, which is probably more common. Now what else? Renal artery stenosis. Usually we talk about atherosclerosis, older patients, diabetic, patient with general uh, significant vascular disease, hypertension. Atherosclerotic lesions usually arise in the proximal two centimeters or proximal one-third of the vessel. We try to grade the degree of stenosis, the presence of plaque, and any secondary findings, including small kidneys or infarction. Beautiful example of a high-grade stenosis in the uppermost right renal artery, this patient with two right renal arteries. The role of revascularization versus medical therapy for atherosclerotic disease still is somewhat controversial. Restenosis rate is lower in renal arteries than in coronary arteries and emboli into the renal vascular bed and elsewhere remain a major concern. The benefits of stenting the renal artery improves hypertension, stabilizes renal failure, and reduces recurrent cardiac events such as pulmonary edema. CT is very good at looking at stents. We look at the endovascular stents all the time. And here's a nice example of looking at the endovascular stent, but looking at the stents in the renal artery. When we talk about renal arteries, we talk about stenosis, but also fibromuscular dysplasia. It causes less than 10% of renal artery stenosis and is less common, but it's important to recognize young or middle-aged females associated with smoking, hormones, and vasovasorum disorders. And in symptomatic patients, it's typically bilateral. The most classic term you hear is the string of beads appearance. You, see, you also can see focal concentric stenoses. You can see smooth long stenoses. You can see aneurysms as well. You can see dissection and even thrombosis. So nice example here of FMD. I am preparing an exhibit for RSNA with more detail on the renal arteries using cinematic rendering and volume rendering and MIP. So you'll have to wait for even more detail. I'll talk about renal artery aneurysms and hypertension is number one, but there are many causes from FND to arteritis to Marfan's and Ehlers-Danlos and neurofibromatosis as some examples. Most renal artery aneurysms are incidental findings, but they can be large and cause pain or hematuria. 60% of the main artery bifurcation or main stem renal artery can be bilateral in up to 19% of cases, multiple in up to a third of cases, and up to a third of cases have ipsilateral renal artery stenosis. Nice example here of bilateral renal artery aneurysms, and no great surprise, patients with renal artery aneurysms often have 
splenic artery aneurysms. And here's a nice example of a renal artery aneurysm, a small one in the patient's left renal artery. And oh yes, note this patient has viromuscular dysplasia in the right renal artery. You can see this case, is this a mass? But again, when you see rim-like calcification, you better be thinking vascular. And so you give contrast, and now you see this large aneurysm. Again, calcification is a good hint. Not every aneurysm, even large ones, calcify. When it calcifies, the diagnosis is easier, especially when you have non-contrast CT. Just a very nice example of renal artery aneurysm. Another example, same place. You see it on the axials, and now you see it on coronals. It's a bit eccentric. Renal artery aneurysms can rupture, and so you typically will embolize uh, those that are over two centimeters. Again, another example of a right renal artery aneurysm, FFD, FMD, left renal artery, and splenic artery aneurysms. Again, patients who get aneurysms of splenic artery commonly get renal. Patients with renal commonly get splenic or hepatic, whatever. Now, complications of renal artery aneurysms, we mentioned hypertension, rupture, um, infarction by distal embolization and AV fistula, some of the common complications. Again, in terms of treatment, some recommend repair in the setting of pain or complications, such as dissection or embolization. Other people will wait. Endovascular repair has become an interesting alternative. And CT, of course, is very good for looking at pre-op planning and looking at post-op follow-up. Now, with renal artery aneurysms, the risk of rupture increases during pregnancy, and the risk correlates with aneurysm size. Uh, surgical treatment decreased blood pressure in up to 60% of those with preoperative hypertension. So maybe in select patients, that will be the way to go. Um, if you say, when do we fix renal artery aneurysms? Over 2CM seems to be the magic number. Most people will probably go 1.5 to 2 and still do it. Uh, in greater than 1CM with certain risk factors, hypertension, IPSI or contralateral renal artery stenosis, or women of childbearing age. So I think older patients, you tend to be more conservative. Younger patients, you tend to be more aggressive. Now, with renal artery dissection, the most common time I see it is extension from an aortic dissection into the renal artery. It can be due to trauma. You can be a sequela of fibromuscular dysplasia, a sequela of antiphospholipid antibody. It can be due to Ehlers-Danlos or just idiopathic. Nice example here of a focal dissection, proximal right renal artery. Or here is a dissection of the aorta tracking into the left renal artery and near the patient's SMA. We also look at renal artery thrombosis. Thromboembolic disease most commonly from the heart. You can see renal artery injury, spontaneous traumatic dissection, FMD, or hypercoagulability states can all lead to occlusion of the renal artery. So there are a number of different possibilities. Renal artery uh, thrombosis, usually best seen on the axial image. You can often see a filling defect in the renal artery and then the infarction in the kidney proper. And infarcts can be subtle on early CT. If you look at the July 2019 CTSS quiz, one of the cases is renal infarction. The reason I'm being so helpful telling you that, so you're not, and I know you're not going to cheat because by the time this lecture comes out, you would have already seen the quiz, so that's good. But here's an example. You see the occlusion in the renal artery, thin sections, reconstructions, or even the axials. There's thrombus in the renal artery, and there's an infarct in the kidney. 
Now what else you can see? Let me summarize the last thing, renal AVMs. They're rare, but they can be large, usually located near the renal sinus, usually solitary and right-sided. Presentation, gross hematuria. We talk about using IV contrast for hematuria. If you don't, I've seen large aneurysms missed. Patients can present with hypertension or flank pain or cardiac output. Beautiful example here of renal AVM. And again, I'm going to show you more of these as we put together some additional work. So I've gone through a number of different possibilities in these two lectures. Vascular mapping is important. 3D makes it very easy to pick up aneurysms and pseudoaneurysms between the renal arteries or the splenic artery. It's critical looking at the sagittals for looking at many things, including the SMA. I didn't cover median awkward ligament syndrome, but again, the sagittal view is critical there. We focus on post-processing. We focused on some of the various pathologies and the role of CT in diagnosis and helping with management. And with that, I'll stop there and I'll be happy to take any questions. Oh, wait a second. This lecture is on the web. You can email us at CTSUS where we take all the questions, but don't raise your hand because I'm not looking. Have a great day. If you liked what you heard here today, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit our website ctisus.com for lectures, quizzes, pearls, and more. Also, be sure to check out our apps that are available for free on the Apple Store. All links are in the description box below.